If I hadn't had a chance to meet you, uh, it's, uh, it's good to meet you all. My name's uh, Joe, and the uh, pastor of Central City. For those who are online, it was good to chat with you there for a second, and uh, glad to have you uh, join us. So it is good to, uh, good to be in worship all together. Um, if you are guests with us, we'd love to connect with you. We have a, a pretty simple connect card. It's in the pews. It says connect card on it. You can also go online, centralcity.co slash connect, and fill something out. So uh, we'd love for you to do that. Happy Mother's Day to the mothers in the room. Uh, it's good to have you uh, with us today. Uh, I do have one announcement. Uh, we're looking at possibly offering a Bible class here at Central City Church. And uh, um, really, the, the idea is um, kind of teaching or explaining the process uh, that I use to study scripture. So um, referencing, having access to some of the commentaries. So a lot of work goes into a a sermon, uh, and uh, I know that there's people who would love to be able to do that work themselves. So this class is really just, we're going to walk through a passage. We'll uh, learn empathetic and um, uh, intellectual ways on how to wrestle with scripture, maybe even some more difficult passages. We'll have some discussion. You'll be given access to some commentaries, and really we'll be doing exegetical work, or what we call exegetical, you know, interpreting scripture together. So um, this is something I'm interested in doing, uh, but if you know me well enough, I'm only interested in doing things if you also are interested in doing that. And so if there's enough people who are interested, we'll make it happen, and if not, we'll bring it up another time and see if, uh, if there's interest at that point. So if you're interested, you can go to centralcity.co slash news and one of the news articles on our website is uh, the Bible class. So uh, there's a form where you can check and express interest, and it has a couple different questions that um, I uh, um, would love for you to do. Uh, if there's enough interest, we'll do that. I'll announce it a few more times, but uh, if you are interested, let me know. Um, it is Mother's Day, so happy Mother's Day. Um, we're currently in a series where we are looking at nameless uh, stories, uh, stories of people who are unnamed in the Bible, Anonymous characters. Um, and we've spent uh, last week in the book of uh, 2 Kings, chapter 4. And we're going to spend another week in 2 Kings, chapter 4. We might next week as well. I haven't decided. Uh, but 2 Kings, chapter 4 is what we're on for today. Another story about somebody whose name we're not giving. Um, and last week, if you were with us, we talked about uh, modern-day slavery. We looked at a story of a mother who was going to lose her children because of her husband's, her late husband's debt. And so then we spent some time talking about how this is still a reality in our world. It's a reality in the United States. It's a reality in most of our supply chains uh, and most of the stuff we wear, not everything. And it's also a reality in other parts of the world. So we spent some time sitting with that. There are on our website, centralcity.co slash slavery, a number of resources that are available if you want to dig into it more. Uh, some things you can do uh, the way some ways you can purchase differently so that we're not supporting modern day slavery. So uh, that was a pretty important, hard one. Today we're going to look at another story, and I do want to warn you um, that uh, these unnamed anonymous stories are often unnamed and anonymous for a reason. These are the kind of stories that we don't like to talk about, um, and uh, so we're going to look at another difficult but important one. Um, in some ways, this story might be more difficult for some people, because it's more personal. So last week, we're going to be, like last week, we're going to be looking at a story of a mother and her family. Now, there are a number of issues in the story that can be triggers uh, for people. So I'm going to say that up front, especially on Mother's Day. I didn't uh, plan this because it was Mother's Day. This is just the series we're in, but 
I, I do trust that God is able to work in mysterious ways, so I am hopeful that, that this actually be very meaningful, the fact that it happened to fall on Mother's Day. We'll talk briefly about infertility, and we'll also be talking briefly about the death of a child. Now, these are difficult realities for many people. Um, far too many people face these realities, and I'm not going to take it lightly, um, and we will be sensitive. But in this story, uh, and in this story, um, all is actually made well. Uh, both of these struggles are overcome miraculously, um, but that almost makes it more of a trigger for some people uh, because that isn't always the story we're left with. That's not the story we experience. So in fact, that this story has such a happy ending might make it all the more triggering for those who don't. So I want you to know, feel free to take the space you need. Um, if you need to go downstairs, go outside. It is a beautiful day. You're not going to hurt my feelings. I understand. Um, put headphones in, whatever you, know, whatever you need to do. Um, but I am hoping to present this in a way that I think will be uplifting and something that I think God will use in all of our lives as we reflect on these nameless stories together. So as we prepare our hearts for the message, I'm going to invite you to uh, take a few seconds and uh, we'll pray together, but also create some space for silence. I like to do this most weeks uh, for my benefit as much as yours, where we can just um, lay aside those things that would distract us, those things that we carried in with us, that we might uh, be open to what God would have to say to us today. So let us pray. I invite you to take a couple breaths in. Remind ourselves that it is the breath of God that sustains us. The Spirit of God that calls us into this space is the person of Christ that we are being called to become like. Fill us with love and peace. We might be a bold presence in this world that is often broken and hurtful. And that we might be to other people what God is to us. Compassionate, empathetic, understanding. Jesus, we ask all of this in your name. Amen. 2 Kings chapter 4, starting with verse 8. If you have your Bibles, you can go there. And if not, uh, follow along on the screen. We'd have the words up on the screen. We are looking at uh, the stories with Elisha. And if you remember, stories with Elisha in this particular chapter are um, Elisha's other duties as assigned. Uh, the primary role of a prophet was to go and challenge the kings to speak truth to power, but a prophet could also engage in the mundane things of life. And we're going to look at another story where he's interacting with just an ordinary, everyday person. It could be you or it could be me. Elisha is going to interact in very much a foreshadow of Jesus. The miracles of of, of, of uh, 2 Kings chapter 4 mimic or look exactly like many of the miracles that Jesus does. So we get this like foreshadowing of who Jesus is going to be. In fact, Jesus claims to be a prophet in the line of Elijah, and by extension, Elisha, because of this very reason, because he is doing miracles similar to what they did. And, and this story follows a very similar pattern to a miracle that Jesus does, and we'll mention that uh, a little later. So verse 8, one day Elisha the prophet went to Shuman, which is an area, uh, and a well-to-do woman was there who urged him to stay for a meal. So whenever he came by, he stopped there to eat. Last week in the story immediately before this one, we looked at a woman who was so destitute 
who was so poor that she risked losing her children. She was going to lose her children because she couldn't pay off her husband's debt. Bonded labor, we spent a whole service looking at this. Um, her kids were going to be taken from her by, her, by, by, by the person they borrowed from. Well, in this story, we're given the story about somebody um, in a very different socioeconomic status. We're told of a woman who was well-to-do, a woman who was powerful, a woman who had means, a woman who had money. She has more than enough money to go around, uh, enough that she can serve the prophet, she can support the prophet. And this is, in, in some way, reminds me of Jesus as well. As you might know, Jesus was supported predominantly by wealthy women, if you read the Gospels. So we see a little bit of Jesus and Elisha even right here. There's this wealthy woman, so praise God for wealthy women, who are supporting this prophet. And so we have these roles reverse. A woman who was so destitute she couldn't even provide for her children, going to lose her children. Now we have a woman who has power and money enough to be able to support the prophet. So, verse 9, she said to her husband, this is her idea. She has a husband, but she's known as being well-to-do. This is thousands of years ago, fairly progressive if you ask me, based on the cultural norms of that time. But she tells her husband, you know, as the well-to-do woman, I know that this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. Let's make a small room on the roof and put in it a bed and a table, a chair and a lamp for him. Then he can stay there whenever he comes to us. Now, I'm not saying any of you have vacation homes in beautiful places, but if you wanted to add on a room for me, I would be completely understand. No. She builds him a room. This is what she, this is, she has significant resources. Drastically different than the last story. She has more than enough to go around. She has enough to buy what she wants. She, she doesn't need anything. She has so much she can help other people, which is good. One of the greatest lessons I ever learned in generosity, I've, I kind of have a, a romantic view of poverty. If you've been around, you know that about me. It's not necessarily healthy, but I have a romantic view of poverty. I grew up lower middle class, one of seven kids. You know, we never bought nice things. That's how I was raised. And, and so I, I remember telling my Sunday school class, who was a factory owner in our small uh, area in our nor you know, northwest Ohio, so he had money and means, and I was talking about how I wanted to be poor my whole life. And he said something to me that really stood out. He says, he says I want you to, uh, and I couldn't argue with it. Most arguments around wealth and God's blessing of wealth, like I can, I can argue pretty theologically on why it's bad. The Bible has a lot to say about wealth. But one thing he said I've not been able to argue with, he says, I hope that you have enough means that you can be generous to others. And I was like, oh, well, that's an interesting idea. This woman had enough that she could be generous to others. So verse 11, one day when Elisha came, he went up to his room and lay down there. And he said to his servant, Gehazi, call the woman, the Shumanite. So you kind of see something happening inside of Elisha. He's, he's got this own room when he passes through the area. Um, he's uh, got what he, you know, he's, he, which makes his travels a whole lot easier um, and his ministry a whole lot easier because he would roam and preach and teach and go talk to leaders and local government officials and heal people. I mean, this was his role as the man of God. Um, and uh, now he wants to give something back because he's so generous. That, that's what we're going to see. So he called her, and, he stood before, and she stood before him. And Elisha said to him, uh, tell her, you have gone to all this trouble for us. Now what can be done for you? You know, he wanted to give something back. Now this is somewhat uh, complicated, especially in modern day. He, he has allowed himself to be put into a position where he feels obligated to this woman. I just spent uh, last week 
uh, in a four-hour boundaries training that's required for all clergy, um, where we were reminded we do not receive gifts in, uh, from uh, congregants, and when we do, we count it as income. You know, there's a variety of uh, boundaries. Elisha would not would be written up for some of the stuff that he's doing. Many United Methodist pastors, especially in the past, with circuit riders, most Methodist pastors in the birth of our nation were roaming pastors like Elisha. So they would stay at people's houses and stuff. Now we live in a society where it becomes much more complicated and um, it's, it's, it's messy. But he's found himself in a bit of a messy situation because he feels obligated to her. And so he says, what can I do to help you? And then he even says, I'm willing to use my power and influence to help you, which gets... This isn't presented as a bad thing, but honestly, this is not a great thing. He says this, can we speak on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? He's always like, I, I'm, I currently am roaming around helping ordinary people, but I actually rub shoulders with some very powerful people, woman. Can I help you? Do you need a good word in with the governor, with the mayor, with the general? How can I use my power to help you because you're helping me? And she replies this, I love this woman. She says, I have a home among my people. I have a home among my own people. Here's what she's saying. I don't need your influence and power. In my circle, in my village, amongst my people, I'm well respected. And I'm doing all right. She's like, no thanks. I'm good. She's kind of a, I don't know if there's any, you know, strong women in the room, but she seems like kind of like a competent, independent Woman, who's like, you know what? I don't, I don't actually need your help. I've kind of built my own world here. And I love this about her because she's truly content, mostly content. Now, there is one thing that she lacks. And this will, I'm going to meddle a little bit right now. When you are well-to-do, which I'm preaching to the choir here, friends, when you're well-to-do and you, you, you know, let me put it like this. If you're not worried about losing your children to bonded labor, then that's what I mean by your well-to-do, okay? Like in the grand scope of the world. Like if, you're, if you have enough and you're not worried about where your meal's gonna come from later, then you're well-to-do. And if you're well-to-do and you, and you typically aren't worried about that, it is easy to become too content and to feel like you don't need anything, which can impact your relationship with God. Now, Elisha's going to dig a little deeper, and we find that even people who are well-to-do, who have, they can buy whatever they want, what we find is they don't always have everything they want, and that there's actually deep hurt and deep need. So verse 14, he asks, um, what can be done for her? He's asking his servant after she leaves, and the servant says, she has no son and her husband is old. And so he says, okay, here's an idea. Now, He's like, she doesn't have a son. I have two thoughts on this that might seem contradictory. One I already kind of shared, but here's the first one. He's looking for her needs, and part of me thinks, it's this is my opinion. I don't know if this is good advice or not. Okay, I'm just going to say that right here. I have some good advice later that came from someone else, but I don't know if this is good advice, but this is my opinion. I, don't, I find it uncomfortable to go looking for something that someone needs that they're not asking for. And I feel like maybe like that can cause problems. Do, do you know what I'm saying? Like it's not always a bad idea. Like actually, you know, people who can figure out what I need and give it to me, like they're really generous. And I'm not good at that. First off, so it might just be my baggage. <laughs> but uh, I find it uncomfortable. Be like, well, let's find something she needs and then give her that. Um, I'm over here thinking like she seems pretty okay. Like she wants to be able to give without getting anything in return. But Elisha, he presses. 
The second thing is this idea that even though she has everything, she obviously doesn't have everything. So I just want to say in the room, as we talk a lot about issues of justice, and we talk a lot about racial justice, we talk a lot about poverty, we talk a lot about social economic, you might be very comfortable financially and still be poor and needy. Do you hear me? And you still need Jesus. You still need the man of God in your life, the prophet, the whatever, you know, you still need God to show up. I'm just gonna say that, and we might bring it up later, but she still needed stuff. We all need something. Verse 15, Elisha said to her, Call her. And so he called her, and she stood in the doorway of his of his new little add-on room. And he says, About this time next year, Elisha said, You will hold a son in your arms. Well, that's a promise. And you know what she says to that? Strong, competent, independent woman who's already content. No, my lord, she objected. Please, man of God, don't mislead your servant. I love this woman because she comes across so content. She's accepted her life. Does she want a child? I think so. Is she, you know, is she trying to live her life now as one who doesn't have one? Yes, she's trying to make the best of it. She's trying to do good with what she has. Um, and so let me just say this. If someone, if you know someone who's struggling with infertility and you come to them and say, next year you're going to have a child, I just know it, 99.99% of the time, that's the wrong thing to say, okay? And it's honestly just kind of mean. Now, a brief word on, 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 on infertility before I move on. I've never experienced it, and I'm a man, you know. So I mean, like, and, it, and it's not something I've struggled with. So I, I, what I've been told, though, is this. In fact, someone just told me this this week, and, and, and based on my experience, this is the case. People who struggle with infertility, and so I'm talking to the people who are like with me that have not personally experienced this difficulty. One of the goals of this sermon is that we might become more empathetic. We're going to do this a couple of times. This is one of those times I'm just going to talk to you and say, hey, like, you need to know this. If you've not struggled with it, here's what I've been told. It's not just this little thing that kind of bothers you on the side, and generally you just go on living your life. People who really struggle with it and really want to have a child, every child they see, every pregnant woman they see, every family they see reminds them of what they can't have, and it is painful. In fact, somebody, uh, a mother in our church, was telling me, uh, who doesn't struggle with infertility, was, struggle, was telling me how surprised she was of those friends that she has who have struggled with it, how much more pervasive than it was than she would imagine, how it just was always on their mind. So I just want to say that. I don't know if that's this woman's story, whether she had gotten over it, whether she really wanted a child. It sounds like her response that she was trying to get over it, right? She's like, oh, don't raise my hopes. I'm trying to be content. But people who struggle with it, the important thing is to know is that the pain is real. We're going to talk more about that. I'm going to hold on to it. That's just me talking to you, talking to me. How do we increase our empathy? Very important goal. Um, Now, here... Because this guy was a prophet, and in this setting, we'll, we're, you got to know, he, also, he wasn't just a prophet. Prophet meant mouthpiece of God. She refers to him as man of God. I mean, he is a figurehead of God. 
He kind of in some ways represents God, not, not an incarnation of God or anything like that, but he, he was a figurehead far more than, than a current plat, uh, Protestant pastor is in our denomination or anywhere else. Like he represented as a mouthpiece of God. And so as that, it actually comes true, verse 17. But the woman became pregnant, praise the Lord. Sometimes it works out. Times it doesn't. The woman became pregnant in the next year. About that time, she gave birth to a son, just as the man of God, the mouthpiece of God, the mouthpiece of God had told her. But the story isn't over yet. Verse 18. The child grew. One day, this child's old enough to go out to his father who's working in the fields. He's out with the reapers in the fields, agricultural culture. I don't know if that's where she made her money or if she made it from some other way. But he said to his father, this little kid, we don't know how old, but old enough to go out to the fields by himself, my head, my head. He gets a headache. Now, we skip a few years where he's old enough to do this. He's old enough to explain that he has a headache, so we know he's of at least a certain age. Um, He gets this headache, and his father, who's probably even older at this point, we're told his father's old, so his father tells a servant, carry him home to his mother. Verse 20. And after the servant had lifted him up and carried him to his mother, the boy sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. No parent should lose a child. And I think in some ways it's even worse when it's unexpected. One day. Here's how the mom responds, verse 21. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, you know, the mouthpiece of God who had told her she would have a son, and shut the door and went. She takes him to the bed of the one who told her she'd have a child. In her mind, he didn't just tell her that she would have a child. By speaking it as a mouthpiece of God, she probably thinks she had a child because he said something. Right? This is, God gave her this child in, in a unique and supernatural way. That's how, that's how she would have perceived it. Now, our theology is a little bit more complex 2,000 years, 3,000 years later. But at her time, God gave her this child. The prophet spoke it into existence. That's important to this story. God gave it to her. Not just prophesied and said it would happen. No, it happened because he stood up and said, God's going to give you a child. So, verse 22, she called her husband and said, now I don't know if the husband at this point even knows what's going on. I'm going to suggest, based on my reading, that he doesn't because of how she says. She calls her husband and said, please, he probably thinks he he just has a headache and he's sleeping, right? He's upstairs sleeping on the bed because he had a headache. She calls her husband and said, please send me one of your servants and a donkey so I can go to the man of God quickly and return. And he says, why go to him today? Clearly, he doesn't know what's happened. No urgency in his question. It says it's not even a new moon or a Sabbath. Those are the days you'd often go see a prophet, new moons and Sabbaths. And she says something. She says, that's all right, she said. That's all right. Or as the English Standard Version uh, translates, all is well. (laughs) The, The Hebrew word here is shalem, similar to shalom, which means well-being, Holistic peace. What a crazy thing for her to say. She says, all is well. Friends, this is, what's happening to her is literally the opposite of all is well. The worst thing any 
parent could imagine ever happening to them is happening to her. And she's like, I got to go see the prophet. And he's like, why? And she says, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Maybe it's a testament to just how independent she is. She didn't need him asking questions. All is well, shalom, peace, well-being. Things are as they should be, she says, even though they aren't. So verse 24, she saddled the donkey and said to her servant, lead on, don't slow down for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. And when she saw her, when he saw her in the distance, the man of God said to his servant, he says, hey, go look, it's the Shumanite, you know, the one who gives me a free room and board. So run to her and meet her and ask her, are you all right? He asked the question, do you have peace? Are you all right? Is all was well? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? So the servant goes out and catches him, catches her and says, hey, you're coming in to see the prophet. Is everything okay? And she says it again. Shalem. All is well. Everything's fine. Now in, this sense, in this instance, you're almost like, she's saying like, uh, get out of my way. I, I didn't come to see you, servant, assistant prophet. I'm going to see the mouthpiece of God. Because I got a problem. Same thing, Shalem, all is well. And then she presses on. Every person she talks to on the way to seeing the mouthpiece of God, this figurehead of God, she says all is well until she reaches the man of God. Verse 27, when she reaches the man of God at the mountain, she took hold of his feet. And the servant came to push her away. But the man of God said, no, leave her alone. She is in bitter distress. But the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me why. Now, in his context as a mouthpiece of God, he was presented as having supernatural ability, often knew what was going on, often knew what was going on under the surface. He says, I, I can tell, but now I can tell something's not right, but I don't know why. This is the one place where we can relate to the man of God. Let me say it like this. When you encounter someone who's in bitter distress for whatever reason, the majority of the time, you're not going to know why. You don't know why. Most of us, when we encounter someone who is truly hurting, we don't know why. And we got to recognize that, and we got to start from there. So verse 28, this is what she says to him. I just increasingly love this woman. Uh, verse 28, did I ask you for a son, my Lord? Didn't I tell you don't raise my hopes? She says, you gave me something I didn't even ask for only to take it away. Because once again, in her mind, now, we're not going to get into the theology of did God, does God give and take away as Job cries out in the book of Job. It's a little more complicated than that. We're not getting that today. But from her mind, that's how, she's, that's how she would view this. You, as the man of God, the mouthpiece of God, God gave me this child only to later take it away. And I'll tell you what, if you've not found yourself feeling that way at some point in your walk with Christ, then you probably will. And I, I know that's bad news on this Sunday, but it'll happen. Why is this happening to me? Losing a child is not something that I've experienced. So I proceed with caution. But I did find some stories that were really helpful for me. There's a, a, a pastor in Zimbabwe. Uh, I think I have a photo. Can you guys put that up? Yeah, oh, back. Yeah, there you go. Um, he has a little son named uh, Wesley. 
This pastor actually came to Dayton, Ohio to go to school um, a while back. And while he was in Dayton, his son got very sick. And he flew home. The son passed away before he could get there. And uh, he lost his son. And he's, he's written about this experience. He says this. He says his son's name's Wesley, of course, good Methodist pastor. The death of Wesley was wrenching, unexpected, and incomprehensible. Children are supposed to live longer than, uh, than their parents do. When they do not, the pain is unimaginable. I sobbed the entire three and a half hour drive from Hera to Mute, where, you know, to his home. I thought, it was not, uh, I thought life was not worth living because of the intense pain I endured from losing Wesley. So he hurried back uh, from, uh, uh, to Zimbabwe from Dayton and, uh, where he was uh, going to school. And uh, by the time he got there, uh, Wesley had already died. The friends who came to meet him uh, delivered the sad news. In the days that follow, he said, some well-meaning Christians attempted to counsel him and his wife. And here were some of the things they said. And this is on my list of things not to say in a situation like this. We'll put that up. Here's, here's what he said people said, and he said this was not helpful. They said, it's all part of God's plan, just accept it as believers. God wanted another flower in his garden. Please be comforted that Wesley is in a better place. I know exactly how you feel. You can have other children. Put this behind you, for God has another plan for you. You have to get on with your life. Some people even said this, since you are preachers, God is preparing for you to be more empathetic to others. Those who had lost children themselves um, uh, tended to be a little bit more understanding. That's why we're having the conversation. There were a couple pastors who checked in on him daily by phone and made frequent visits uh, to their home. And when he talked to them about the death of their son, uh, he said he felt better, um, that he was grateful for their presence. And one thing they said stood out to him. He says uh, his, his past, this, these other pastors, um, it's kind of a story of Job's friends, if you're familiar with Job. Some of Job's friends were horrible. Well, this is just what God wanted for you. And other friends were like, how can I help you? Well, this was the good friend. And he said, my fellow brother, cry hard when you feel like crying. We can hold on to that. Have you been told that by someone who loves you? Oftentimes, like, no, it's okay. You don't have to, like, it's okay. It's okay. You don't, don't cry. This guy said, no, when you feel like crying, cry hard. And he said, this is what helped me grieve when I lost my baby. There was a, a, another story of a, someone who lost a child in the same article, and, and this is what they said. We discovered that our life as a family will never be as it was, but that we have a new normal for our lives. In a very brief time, Jeffrey, their, their son who passed away, became very much a part of our lives. Uh, and as painful as some of those memories may be, it would be infinitely more painful to try to live without the memories of the joy, the anxiety, the hopes, and the fears that he brought into our lives. We talk about Jeffrey often, and though we know the pain will linger forever, the time came when we could remember him and laugh and joke. We try to remember his birthday in some special way each year and emphasize our thanksgiving for the gifts uh, rather than our sorrow in the loss. We find that when someone else suffers a loss from death, 
we are much less inclined to respond with words and answers. We are more likely to simply want to be there and hold their hands or offer a shoulder to catch their tears. I'm going to oversimplify this advice, okay? This is overly simple, simplified, which means it's not, doesn't apply to every situation, but it's easy to remember. Someone is experiencing great loss, shut up and show up. Not about you giving them advice. Not about saying the right thing necessarily. It's about asking the right questions. What do you need? How can I help? But it's even more so about being there. I had a chance this week to talk with uh, Stephen. Uh, Stephen's uh, one of my favorite people. He's served as our board of our uh, chair of our board the last couple of years. Stephen works at Children's Nationwide uh, in palliative care. So he serves families with children who are terminally ill. He has worked with dozens of families who've had to wrestle with the loss of their child. And I told him I was talking about this, and I said, you know, we just had a conversation over coffee on Saturday morning of all places, so this is still very fresh, but here were some of the things he said. So I don't know if I got good advice, but if anyone has, uh, is an expert in this, it's Stephen, okay? And a beautiful soul of a person. One of the things he said that stood out to me, he says, follow the other person's lead. You, you encounter somebody who's experiencing great loss, great suffering, death of a child or, or something else, follow the person's lead. Don't force them to be in a place or to process something that they're not ready. Sometimes that means laughing with them, he said. Sometimes that means crying with them. Sometimes that means listening. But the important thing is to follow their lead. What do they need right now? The other thing he said that was really interesting to me, he said, when people fall apart, be open. Now, this is going to convict some of us, okay, because of our culture. He says, be open. That's what he meant by that. Let them be where they are and choose to be there with them, even if it's uncomfortable. You know, we often try to uh, comfort people because we're uncomfortable. And it says like, oh, you're falling apart, and I'm uncomfortable with that, so let me make it better. It's okay, it's okay, because I'm uncomfortable with your grieving. He says, don't do that. That's not okay. Let people be where they are, and you choose to be with them. He says, one of the best, uh, one of the best interventions you can have is to acknowledge their pain. And, and something else he said, I'm going to call check your spirituality. It goes back into some of those bad things that, that uh, you know, not to say. Um, they sound really spiritual. But, but he, says, he says things like telling people that God has a plan. Now, I'm not going to do justice because this is actually a really brilliant idea that I had just a coffee conversation about. So you're going to have to do some work to unpack this one, friends. But he says, you know, telling people that God has a plan is often rooted in the idea that separates this incident from ourselves. In other words, what we mean when we say God has a plan is that God had a plan for you that includes this, but that isn't going to happen to me. That's God's plan for you. As opposed to recognizing the hard reality that regardless of who you are, we live in a broken world, and it could happen to you. And that's scary to think about. There have been a few moments in my life with a specifically as a father, where I've let the story unravel. 
an idea of something happening to Finn. I, I let it play out in my head. And I don't know how to explain the way that it made me feel. It was indescribable. But here's what I know. Trying to live a life pretending like hard things don't happen means you'll be incapable of offering empathy to people when the hard things happen. And you're like, well, I've not, I've, I have a great life, and I have a great family, and everyone's safe, and I have everything I need. Great. That's not everyone's story. And when you encounter somebody who's experienced hard things and you're unwilling to actually feel that with you, with them, then, then, you're, then you're unwilling to have empathy. Because empathy literally means that, to imagine it for yourself. To, to imagine, like, oh, this is, that's what that would be like. I don't, I don't know what, it, I don't understand what you're going through. Stephen, and, and I'll just say that this is my interpretation of Stephen, so if there's anything good that comes out of that, it's credit to Stephen, and if something was said wrong, that's my fault. So I'm just gonna, that's my disclaimer. But Stephen went on to say as well, our culture is often opposed um, to this idea of empathy because we live in a culture that thinks we can fix everything. And friends, we can't. Now, there's no doubt that we believe in a God who can do miracles. And the fact that sometimes God doesn't is a hard truth that many of us are going to wrestle with our entire lives uh, and, and might at times make us angry with God. And here's what I want to say. God sees your anger, and God can handle your anger. So if you're angry, please take it to God. Let God know. You will find a worthy and compassionate friend who will not push you away simply because you got mad at him. That's the God we serve. Now, if we go on and read this story, unlike most of the stories in the world, this prophet actually does heal her son. He goes and he shows up and he brings the son back to life. He drags him, uh, she drags the prophet back to his house. She's like, you're gonna see this, you know, this woman's great. Yeah, you really should spend some time with her in, in 2 Kings 4. She's like, no, you're, she, the, the prophet, uh, Elisha's like, hey, send my staff over and just touch the kid with my staff and he'll be healed. And she's like, uh, no, I'm not getting the staff today. You're coming to my house and you're going to deal with this thing that you got me in the middle of. So she forces him and he raises her back to life. And it's a miracle. It's happy days. Amen. Praise the Lord. Um, and it reminds us of a story in Jesus, uh, the Gospels, where Jesus raises a child from the dead, and he says, uh, you know, why are you mourning? He's, uh, this woman, this girl is in a, uh, dead. The girl's only asleep, and I woke her up, and he's talking about resurrection. So um, uh, just as G Elisha raises a kid, Jesus says that many years ago. So he goes into the room of the young child. He silences the mourners. He says all this. Amen. Praise the Lord. But here's, hear this. Throughout Scripture, there are around nine to 10 stories of people being raised from the dead. Nine to 10. Old Testament, New Testament, Book of Acts, nine to 10. On the other hand, there are thousands, if not millions of people who die during that catalog of the biblical narrative. Thousands upon thousands die, but less than a dozen are given a second chance. So these stories don't exist to give us false hope. They're not here for false hope. They're here for real hope. They're meant to remind us that none of us will leave this life alive. Even if you get a second chance and you're brought back to life, you'll eventually grow old and die. But even in leaving this life, we aren't faced with the end. Our end in this life isn't the end. 
These stories exist to remind us that even in death, even if death can't be reversed here on earth, death doesn't have the final say, that we are resurrection people. We just celebrated Easter a couple of weeks. We are resurrection people that, that no matter what happens in this world and what brings us to our own end, that that's not the end of the story. It might not help us always in the midst of mourning and lamenting and sorrow. The song we sang earlier today, Oh, Great is Thy Faithfulness, where does it come from? Someone's got to know. The book of Lamentations. The whole city is demolished. Thousands are killed, including children and women. And the writer is lamenting the loss of their city in the midst of war, something that we can watch on news right now. And in the midst of that, the writer says, oh, great is thy faithfulness. Your mercy is new every day. It's like facing the worst that life could bring to you and saying to the people along the way, all is well. <laughs> when things are far from all right, resurrection people are able to squeak past our broken hearts as quiet and as stubborn and as insistent as this unnamed woman and say, all is well. All will be well. Things aren't well, but they will be again, and I'm, I'm not okay, and that's okay. Shalem, shalom, in time, if not in this life, in the one to come, all will be well. Like another great hymn, when peace like a river attendeth my way, and when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. So, for all the mothers we've lost, for all the mothers who have lost, for anyone anywhere who is reminded of the unbearable loss of a loved one, for those who fear that they are facing a loss of some kind that is too great to bear, for all who are suffering anywhere, I do pray God's shalom upon you that not right away and in no agenda or timeline that I'll set that you might find healing, a new normal, comfort, peace, shalom. And while we might never feel whole, I pray that we can find that new normal. And as we do, I encourage us to be here for one another. To be there. And maybe there's nothing more we can say on the matter. Maybe there's nothing we can fix. Maybe we need to let go of the idea of fixing which I hear is a guy thing, but is it just guys who just want to fix it? I, I know it's true for me. We have to let go of that and just be present. So I want to say to you that whatever you're facing, we're here. I hope that you're here for each other, that we might be the body of Christ together. Let's pray. God, we come before you and we give you thanks. God, we give you thanks for the ways in which you work in mis mysterious and miraculous ways uh, to bring healing to those who are in need of it. But Lord, I also give you thanks for those people who come around us to uh, be there for us when we don't see the miracles that we want. For the ways in which you sustain us against all odds when we just feel like quitting and giving in because the, gr the loss is too great. Help us to be a community of grace and empathy and understanding towards each other and towards the world. 
We ask all of this in the name of your son, who took on human flesh, became our great high priest, that he might empathize and sympathize with our sufferings, our Lord and Savior.